Welcome to our TMIT Global Research Testbed webinar today. We're delighted to have you join us. And the topic uh, is the five rights of my identity, my personal identity. And we're just delighted to have you join us here at the end of the year. My name is Charles Denham. I am the chairman of TMIT Global. Uh, and this is our 211th monthly webinar. And we are delighted to be tackling a very challenging and uh, new topic of uh, great concern. Um, we'll start off with a couple of videotapes just to um, uh, help us kind of have a context of some of the challenges that we face. We know that Google is tracking us. We agree to it when we set up our phones. So we wanted to figure out what exactly Google is learning about us throughout the day. So here's what we're going to do. We have two identical phones. The only difference between these two phones is this one is in airplane mode. Both of the phones lack a SIM card, and they haven't been set up to access any Wi-Fi networks. So for all intents and purposes, these phones have no connection to a data network. We're going to keep them with us throughout the day. And while I travel around DC, we're going to figure out just what Google is finding out about me. Our first stop, Sims Convenience Store, just outside our Fox Bureau, for a quick coffee. From there, we took a walk to the Capitol and took a quick walk around the Senate office buildings and then decided to hop in a car and head around town. Hello. We're going to the Children's Hospital, please. To run our tests, we had to do more than walk the block, so we took a tour around our nation's capital. First, due north to the Children's National Medical Center Hospital, then west to St. Albans School and the National Cathedral. Our tour around town was a 14-mile journey that lasted more than an hour. The entire time, the phones had no access to the Internet. Oh, my goodness. Not a Wi-Fi connection and not any cellular data service. It almost seemed quaint to assume that Google wouldn't even be able to collect data on me. Let's head back to the bureau, my friend. Oh, that church is beautiful. Google's business model is simple. Collect data on its users and then use that data to sell targeted ads. It's a business model called surveillance capitalism. But does that critical data collection work even when your phones aren't connected? So we're back here at our Fox Bureau in DC, and we've got both of our phones exactly how we left with them. The only difference, really, I snapped a couple of bad selfies at the National Cathedral. <laughs> but otherwise, they have stayed in my pocket for the entire day. So let's find out what they know. This is our man-in-the-middle device. It's basically a Wi-Fi network that these phones are going to connect to once we turn their Wi-Fi on. It's going to pass data through it on the way to Google, but on the way, we're actually going to get a copy of the same data that Google's going to get. We'll be able to decrypt it and then find out where we've been throughout the day. Within minutes, the numbers rolled in. The phone that wasn't on airplane mode registered more than 100 locations, 130 activities, and even 152 barometric readings. As soon as it hooked up to our Wi-Fi, it transmitted 300 kilobytes of data straight to Google. The phone even logged our exact locations, tracking us all around town, the Capitol, the hospital, the school, and the cathedral. Now you may notice what's missing here is the exact route that we took, but it got that data too. It knows when I got out of the car. The metadata has a time log down to the very second, tracking everything. 
when they think that you're walking, riding, and yes, even getting out of the car. Okay, so you're thinking, this isn't a big deal, I'll just put my phone in airplane mode. Yeah, we thought of that too. This is the other phone that we had with us that no SIM card also remained in airplane mode the entire time. Let's see what kind of data it captured. The phone with airplane mode activated actually logged more locations and activities than the other phone, and it also transferred hundreds of kilobytes of data to Google as soon as it was activated. The only thing that's missing from this map is our stop at the children's hospital, but it still knows we were there. There it is. Exiting vehicle, 100% accuracy. Through complicated user agreements and free software, Google gets users to sign away their privacy for nothing. They're even following you in the places that most people would expect total privacy. Government buildings, a children's hospital, a private school, a church. Every move you make, every step you take, Google is watching you. We found this uh, to be a pretty fascinating uh, story, especially in light of the phones not being connected with no SIM card. So, you know, as we think about uh, identity and what's important about identity, what's the government doing? Many people know the dangers of having your identity stolen, but most people are unaware of the fastest growing form of identity theft. Medical identity theft occurs when someone steals or unlawfully uses your personal information like your name, social security number, or Medicare number. Medicare fraud cannot be committed without two pieces of information, the identity of a provider and the identity of a patient. And it's not just con artists who are stealing medical identities to further this fraud. Sometimes it's medical providers. So patients should be wary of any calls or solicitations offering free services or offering some sort of no copay benefit in exchange for their identity. For an identity thief, Medicare numbers and other protected health information can be considered more valuable than credit card information. They can keep using medical information to make money. Medicare can be billed for expensive services that were never provided to the patient or overbill for provided services. Medical identity theft has a significant impact on the American taxpayer, billions of dollars. A patient who has been the victim of medical identity theft may unfortunately receive delayed care or denied services as a result of that false claim. OIG agents are investigating different types of medical ID theft schemes. Other HHS agencies are working to stop medical ID theft by educating the public about trends and how to protect themselves. The Administration for Community Living oversees and funds the Senior Medicare Patrol Program, whose mission is to work with people on Medicare to prevent, detect, and report Medicare fraud, waste, and abuse. The way we do this is we partner with state and community-based organizations across the country who go out and train local volunteers who then in turn work with people with Medicare so that they do not become victims of fraud in the first place. OIG recommends following three steps to help prevent and stop medical identity theft. Deter, detect, and defend. People should protect personal information watch out for common schemes, and review medical bills and statements. Medicare beneficiaries should be wary of responding to unsolicited requests for their Medicare number. And they should always review their Medicare summary notices and look to identify any suspect claims. 
If you notice unusual or questionable charges, contact your health care provider for clarification. It may just be a mistake. If your complaint is not resolved, report the questionable charges. Call 1-800-MEDICARE. The American public's role in fighting and detecting identity theft is critical, and we have to work together to tackle this problem. So one of the really interesting and longer videos on the six ways your identity can be stolen uh, was, again, in our introductory time period, uh, something that we can, uh, uh, you know, kind of think about. And then uh, we'll watch this in, uh, a, uh, in greater length as we proceed through our webinar. However, uh, some of this data and the importance of our children is very, very important. In 2017 alone, more than a million American families have been confronted with child identity theft. Identity theft in total cost them $540 million in direct losses. For example, there's this case with Kimberly Reed from Seattle, and she was surprised to learn that her two-year-old son is not only taking his first steps, but is also earning a decent amount of money. At least, the IRS certainly has questions about the kid's income tax. I'm only 12. I can't be held legally responsible. Hmm, good point. Unfortunately, in almost 20% of cases here, children become victims of their parents, guardians, or relatives. And about 60% of children who have become victims of fraud know the perpetrators. Often children trustfully disclose their data to friends on social networks, or sometimes they're lured by cunning or the threat of violence by familiar teenagers, right? By the way, uh, 987-65... 4320. That's my social security number. No, that's your PIN number. No, my PIN number is 3674. Bingo. The digitalization of school and medical documents has become another channel for the leakage of such data. As the result of a negligent attitude to information security, child identification data often gets leaked to the World Wide Web. So, to protect your child, teach him or her about the real dangers of the online jungle. And do that from an early age. Do not forbid online communication, but explain in detail that the strange attention of a network friend can actually threaten them. Unpleasant surprises can also be waiting for you in the hospital. The theft of medical identity is something you should be concerned about, and it's becoming more and more popular. Moreover, in this case, it's not just your wallet that's at stake, it's your health too. Let me explain. Medical identity theft is the use of someone else's identity to basically obtain medical services. The danger to your health is that diagnoses, extracts, and the results of examinations of a fraudster can get into your medical history. And this happened to a New Yorker actually named June Smith. And one day she visited a doctor and he stunned her with this incredible news. Tests showed that June was pregnant. However, June was in no hurry to please her husband, Tom, with this news. The fact of the matter is that they were both over 70 years old. There could be no question of a pregnancy whatsoever. Now, Medicare specialists joined this investigation quite quickly, and they found out that tens of thousands of dollars went to pay for non-existent doctors in fictional hospitals. Now, to detect this kind of fraud in time, I would suggest carefully monitoring your medical history. Any incomprehensible tests that show up or requests from other hospitals are a serious reason to check your health insurance. 
So that's an excerpt from uh, a longer video, which we'll show uh, partway through our webinar. However, uh, this uh, issue is really, really critical. So in 2023, a task force has been established to tackle this problem. And as we dig deeper, it turns out that uh, we are giving consent and presumed consent to a number of users that then aggregate our data and assemble it. So during our introduction, I think it, this, this teases up, te tees up for us some of the really important issues as we think about the five rights of our own personal identity or consent. Um, for those of you that are joining us in the podcast, uh, you may go to our website, www.safetyleaders.org, to download the slides and to watch the program as a video. For those of you that are watching online, we'll be adding more content. And those of you that are live, we thank you for being with us. And if you'd like to download the slides, go to www.safetyleaders.org. So just as an introduction, for those of you that don't know us, uh, we, uh, our anniversary, our 40th anniversary is this coming July. We started something called CARE University, which is our learning management system. And we began almost 40 years ago starting communities of practice, organizations that work together to learn together and share their information and data. Then from that, we develop course information and undertake course R&D, research and development to improve quality. And we, we worked, for, worked with a number of federal agencies, more than five agencies, and we've worked with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, a number of nonprofits and the WHO globally. Uh, once we get that information together, we identify how we can test and develop competency. And we're so grateful to have Dr. Greg Boats uh, on later today. Dr. Boats has uh, helped us really understand the magic and science of simulation. He's one of the few uh, physicians who is in quality improvement who actually has been board certified in simulation. And then we look to certify and create a mechanism for people to uh, develop the skills and get certified. And we're really grateful to have uh, Randy Steiner with us today from the University of California, Irvine, who's not only an instructor and a leader in emergency response, uh, but also a teacher and instructor in the same areas that we are. And we all work together on our MedTech program, which merges the best medical practice with the best tactical practices for bystander rescue care. And that's an example of what we do. So over the last uh, six to seven months, we've really been focused on a number of emerging threats. Uh, and we have a number of speakers today. Uh, you'll hear from Randy live. You'll hear uh, recordings from uh, Jennifer Dingman and uh, Gregory Boats. And over the last uh, two or three webinars, we've uh, been covering opioid overdoses, the five rights of pain management, and a whole host of emerging threat issues as they relate to, um, uh, to workplace violence. So in workplace violence, we've covered um, a number of topics uh, and uh, emerging threats and how to tackle those emerging threats with Chief Bill Adcox um, and um, uh, the former assistant police chief who is now working with us on emerging threats, Vicki King, who could not be with us today. So we have a number of experts that are working with us and have been reactors to uh, these areas. And for those of you that are on the podcast, because we're not limited on length the way we are with continuing medical education and nursing education credits, you'll be able to hear a longer version. 
we always like to open, and over the years, uh, over the many years that we've been operating this, we always go back to families and the patient. And we've asked Jennifer Digman, who is uh, a leader in patient safety, a co-author of papers with us, um, a champion and an activist in the area of patient safety and quality, uh, to set our course by giving us the voice of the patient and family. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your generous introduction. I'm very interested in today's program. Artificial intelligence is a double-edged sword. It can do great things, and then on the other hand, it could do some things that are not so great. I'm looking forward to learning more about it today in today's program. I'm very grateful to all of you for being here. And again, I encourage you, as I do every time, to share the program with your friends, colleagues, families, and coworkers. I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jenny. And we always record Jenny just because of the internet connections and we know she's uh, she's with us and listening. So uh, uh, we we do have a social media presence. However, we have not been that a major, used that as a major outreach. And so on slide 14, for those that are viewing the slides, we do have a presence and not a real active presence in social media. We've been really careful and we've tried to maintain zero conflict of interest status in that area. Um, our purpose, mission, and values uh, briefly are our purpose will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the, the communities we serve. And we try to live our core values, and we've learned so much from Ann Rhodes, who's the champion of uh, building organizations on values and, and how uh, important they are. And our core values for us to remember are I care, integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurships, the first uh, letters of each one of those words to keep us focused. And we just want to remind you that uh, we none of our speakers have anything to disclose regarding pharmaceutical or device companies. Uh, products today. Uh, and TMIT uh, has no direct or indirect or affiliated financial support uh, at this time or ever been provided by healthcare pharmaceutical or device companies. Our funding has been private philanthropy uh, for now almost 40 years. Uh, we've had some federal grants. Uh, however, this program itself has all been family philanthropy. Uh, we, under, we started a program, a uh, 100 I'm sorry, a 1,000 family household study during COVID to focus on uh, what we call the five R's, which is uh, readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. And that has allowed us to really establish a foundation to keep studying those areas uh, as we focus on our bystander rescue care. And as we discuss this later in the program, you'll hear more about it. These five R's really apply to everything we could do as caregivers, as educators, uh, higher education, medical centers, and our own families, and how we are able to uh, address these five R's. And in future webinars, we'll address this issue of identity, uh, theft, and protection. And today, we're introducing the concept with uh, consent. So uh, for those of you that don't know us, uh, we uh, have developed a network of 3,100 hospitals who collaborate with us in 3,000 communities. And over the last 24 to 36 months, we've expanded that to institutes of higher education. We're so privileged today to have one of our great leaders from one of our organizations. And over the last uh, six to eight months, we've been really focused on, uh, on the issues of uh, workplace violence, 
at the intersection of the other emergencies that uh, bystanders can address, uh, including uh, cardiac arrest, major trauma, choking and drowning, common accidents, uh, opioid overdose, transportation accidents, anaphylaxis, uh, bullying and opioid uh, overdose has been a major focus for us. We started a community of practice focused on the emerging threats that are keeping our leaders up at night. And, and as such, we identified, and this was in um, before COVID in about 2018, we identified 30 areas of critical uh, importance that we really, our leaders did not, major medical centers did not feel uh, uh, they were prepared for. And uh, sure enough, one of them was preparation for pandemics. Uh, and uh, we were um, unfortunately correct in, in believing that we as organizations were not prepared, but cybersecurity, cyber threats also were part of those. And so uh, for those of you on the podcast, we have a graphic that addresses these 30 areas and really they come from inside threats, threats within the structural integrity or the people that are operating within our organizations and outside threats. And we have a, a graphic depicting that. And as we think about the area of identity fraud, unfortunately, of these 30 topics that we're focused on, um, at least two thirds of those topics that we are focused on as leaders of our major medical centers uh, have identity fraud as a component, be that a care caregiver identity fraud, be it a consumer or a patient identity fraud, an academic or an educator, but also the area we're going to cover today with these outside enterprises that are working hard to make a lot of money um, from our personal identities, which is what we're going to really drill down on today. Uh, so this, these emerging threats, the fraud factor was a, a, a major issue. And as we look at fraud, and we depict on, the, on our graphic for those on the podcast, that hospitals, doctors, pharmacists, ambulance services, uh, the issues of kickbacks, academic fraud, laboratory scams, accident claims, workers' comp, drug diversion, cybercrime, insurer fraud, and hospitals um, all have uh, vulnerability and there are currently fraudulent activities going on with uh, likely more than $700 billion uh, of fraud going on. Now, I'm, I'm really blessed to have uh, uh, and have uh, Randy Steiner with us today and we're talking about putting together a more robust program building on our August 17th webinar of freshman preparedness. I'm an old dad. And I have a, a son who's 17. Uh, and uh, I've been mentoring and helping and coaching and working with scouts as uh, Randy Steiner has uh, of young people that are now reaching their 18th birthday and, and getting ready to go to college, but also recognizing the potential threats that can happen with our high school underage students and their interaction with those that are over 18. Uh, back at that time in, in 20, in, in, uh, uh, during our webinar on August 17th, uh, we addressed the vulnerability of our population of students and our teachers and educators at our higher institution, institutions of higher education, and the enormous threats of motor vehicle accidents, uh, uh, opioid overdoses, uh, drowning, uh, anaphylaxis, but uh, the opioid overdose issues just jump off the page as we look at, look at them linearly over our ages. And so over our workforce years, 
uh, it's staggering uh, how big a problem opioid overdose uh, is. And you'll hear a little bit later from Dr. Uh, Dr. Boats uh, uh, about Trink, the xylazine, which is now being added to um, cocaine and, and these other drugs as fentanyl has been added. Only The only problem is, is that xylazine is refractory to, cannot be reversed by Narcan. And so that's a critical issue. So, so our focus has been on eight, eight areas uh, of a challenge of failure to rescue, cardiac uh, uh, arrest, choking, drowning, uh, opioid overdose, anaphylaxis, major trauma, infections, uh, transportation accidents that are not traffic accidents, but actually those in our parking lots of our schools and universities uh, and our homes and bullying and the influence there. And we've been focused on this area of bystander rescue care uh, and, and the areas uh, that we can address. So we, draw, we want to draw your attention to those because opioid overdoses, just we've got to keep it fo keep focused on it and focused on this issue of failure to rescue. So although we're going to be talking about the five rights of consent today, which is uh, separate from that, we want to keep, keep uh, thinking about that. So we've really teed up that we've got some real vulnerability of, uh, uh, of, our, of our families uh, to uh, medical identity theft, financial identity theft, and our children are especially vulnerable to the impact of, uh, of the internet. Uh, just a short video clip on something that many of us haven't heard of, which is called Frankenstein synthetic medical identity theft. Well, identity fraud has been around for centuries, but the internet is giving one type of ID theft a boost by giving fraudsters a way to cherry pick info from different people, creating something called Frankenstein fraud. Fox 5 I team's Dana Fowl is here to explain what this is, Dana. Frankenstein fraud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's because identity thieves are creating a whole new person. They're stealing bits and pieces from a few folks at once, and this new synthetic identity is a fast-growing trend. Federal Reserve Bank's website offers this perfect example. Take a look at that. It can't be clearer. They illustrate here how fraudsters pick a fictitious name with a stolen social security number and made up date of birth, adding in new contact information, and there you have it. Frankenstein, the newly created identity. Again, this is a made-up person, so the bad guys try to make them seem more real by using this identity to apply for, you know, a phone number, credit card, and a whole lot more. Now, this synthetic person has a credit history because they've done all that. But it gets even deeper. Sometimes the fraudster gets a bunch of these Frankensteins, creates a shell company, and then reports all of these fake identities to credit reporting agencies so they can get good credit. And then they steal big money down the road. Here's the most vulnerable population, and it is your children. A security blog reports that 86% of parents don't monitor their children's credit reports. If a child has given their social security number up to social media, make sure you tell them not to do that. But even at the doctor's office or at school, then they are vulnerable. And two out of three parents didn't even know this was an issue. But any account that's rarely used is at risk for ID theft. And that means children, the elderly, and the deceased. Mm. Okay, so don't you have to give your child's social security number? You know, you don't. And okay. I've tried not to, and sometimes I get pushback. But according to the federal government, schools can ask for it, and you can say no to schools. Healthcare providers can ask for it, and you can, you know, say no, but they can decline 
to treat you. Hmm. Uh, I've tried it in a couple of instances, and sometimes I just left it blank. Yeah. And it hasn't been caught. Well, it's always places you're like, why do they need, like, the dentist office, you know, right. that, that's asking for that. Or yeah, just, like, I, rant, like, it, I never like, understand half of that, like, why certain people need to know what I do for a living and what my husband does. Right, like, right. <laughs> Level of education, uh, right? Yeah. Like, just I'm random like, things. Yeah. But, like, serious like, stuff, like social security numbers. Yeah, like, you're like, I just want to return some talents. <laughs> right? That's all I want to do. <laughs> like, what, just... what's all this? <laughs> There's a few questions we're going to have to ask you first, Dana. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Maybe we should start pushing back and saying, you don't need this. Yeah. Good to know that we can. In fact, let's band you know? together and do this. Let's push back. <laughs> let's do it. We can do this together. Very important topic, yeah. though, so I'm glad that you I think it is, and uh, it, it's made me realize I need to check my kid's credit report. Everybody has either a social security number or other type of information that is has been taken and is now being sold on uh, underground markets. With every click, you may be taking a risk. Identity theft is increasing and adapting, along with the amount of people committing crimes. According to the Federal Trade Commission, over 85% of identity theft is synthetic. Our, our regulators, our, our law enforcement personnel are calling it the Frankenstein fraud. Frankenstein fraud. What is it? It's a term for fraudsters stealing and mixing various people's information to create an identity of someone who doesn't exist. It's also known as synthetic identity fraud, and children are some of the main targets. For example, it could be an infant's social security number paired with the name of a person in a nursing home and the address of someone who's deceased. The thief puts it all together to create a real identity of a synthetic person. Aaron Lachlan with the Association of Certified Financial Crime Specialists says criminals are increasingly targeting children's social security numbers. Their social security number is just so raw. And these fraudsters love it because they don't get a whole lot of attention when you use it. Many parents are unaware crimes like this even exist. Have you ever heard of Frankenstein fraud? No. According to security.org, the majority of parents have never checked their children's credit report. Amanda's children are three and eight. But I'm like, okay, so new thing to worry about. <laughs> Got it. Lance Hayden teaches about cybersecurity and privacy at the University of Texas. He says the idea behind Frankenstein fraud has been around for centuries. Every new mass communication technology that comes out, um, you get hackers and thieves and fraudsters and people coming in trying to take advantage of it. It happened with the telegraph, it happened with the telephone, it happened with the internet. The bottom line is our information sells. Passports go for about a thousand dollars. Social security numbers, ironically enough, I think the last status I saw, they go for about a buck. The challenge in enforcing cybersecurity and privacy laws is tracking everything down. There's so much of this crime that they have to investigate you know, it's not that they don't care and it's not that they don't want to do something about it, but where do you go from there? One place you can report it is the Better Business Bureau. Uh, across Texas last year, we only received about 50 reports of uh, ID thefts, and some of that was tied to synthetic ID thefts. Do you think that this is being underreported in Texas just because people are having a hard time pinpointing it? Yes, definitely. That's that's a big cause right there. Regional Before, Director uh, Jason Mesa says prevention is key. Is there a way to operate that's 100% safe online. 
Well, I wish I had the ultimate uh, tool to tell everybody, but I guess the best method, again, is to play the best defense. There are simple ways to strengthen your family's defense against Frankenstein fraud. Establish a credit freeze, create different complex passwords for your accounts, and conduct free credit reports every year. The experts hope that parents will follow these tips to armor their children's data. The more aware um, people are of this issue, I think taking those steps makes a lot of sense. So, Randy Steiner, uh, we'd love to have you uh, share with us uh, kind of as somebody who has worked in law enforcement, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, personally believe very passionately that we have to protect our children from the Internet. We're going to dig into consent and some really technical things that people need to know about uh, giving their consent to the use of their data. But this vulnerability of our youth and young people is just staggering. And most of us have no idea, and especially as we have our young people that are graduating from, uh, from middle school to high school and starting to drive cars and using the internet more and more and communicating with people they don't even know. And then as we move to college, where you are so responsible and doing such a wonderful job, of protecting our college students at UCI. Uh, your reaction to what you've just heard and your thoughts uh, uh, of protecting our youth, our young adults. Well, I agree that, that you know, there's definitely things we, we need to do to, to, uh, to you know, monitor what, what our children are doing, but it's not just as simple as, as that. It's saying, oh, okay, we'll monitor, we'll get a program or something where I can monitor my data. Your children, especially in this generation, you know, where we we grew up, you know, maybe the internet. I didn't even have an internet when I was a child, you know. But you know, maybe younger people than I who have children now started, you know, understanding the internet, you know, or were exposed to the internet when they were younger. But you know, now it's 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 you know a a solid part of our children's existence as soon as they're born. You know, the first time you give them their phone, their phone to play with or something, they all of a sudden know about that. So, you know, they're savvy about hiding what they're doing. Uh, just like we didn't want our parents to know everything we were doing, they 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 are able to do that as well. We have to accept that. Um, but we also, you know, right now there's a an incredibly vulnerable group of of people in this country and around the world who were the students that were coming of age you know, socially, when the COVID pandemic hit, while I, I personally supported and, and I saw the, 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 the need for the lockdown that occurred to prevent the spread of COVID, there's unintended consequences. And that was a lot of these, these children who were becoming socialized, you know, at that time of the same time in our lives when we were meeting people and forming our friend groups and doing that, they were forced to do that online. So they created an entire culture that their parents know nothing about of communicating online and the platforms with which they communicate with online and the activities that are going on in those in those platforms. And it's created an incredibly dangerous situation. Platforms like Discord, like Instagram, uh, you know, which are, are other platforms we may not even know about where, where children are communicating are completely unregulated. There's no, they're the wild west. These children are in these environments where they're you know, able to interact pretty much any way they want and without an understanding of the consequences of that or even what they're doing or even if what they're doing is wrong or potentially illegal, such as sending nudes. That's becoming a, a completely 
normal part of the culture of the online experience of, of children. And that's illegal. <laughs> that's that's where you're getting into, you know, the, the distribution of child porn or the possession of child porn. And it can get people into very, very serious trouble. Um, I don't think that our, our youth necessarily understand that, particularly now that they've been put into, you know, that environment where that's the uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of children came of age during that COVID lockdown and are now in this culture. And you look at the platforms, you look at the regulation, the pushback to regulation from it, that our, our legislators are doing nothing about to ensure the safety of our children on these platforms. The platforms are saying, oh, we can't do anything about it, free speech and, and, and all that. I don't buy that. There is technology that can prevent people from spreading stuff around and from breaking laws inadvertently or advertently online. You know, we there there are backstops that you can put to that, but our technology companies have shown that profit is way more important than safety when it comes to our children online, and our legislatures all the way up to Congress has shown that their political donations from these companies are more important than them legislating to actually protect our children in this country, and that's got to stop. That has got to stop, and the only way it's going to stop is if we as parents reach out and demand that our leaders in this country and that the owners and the, the the people responsible for these online platforms do something about it to protect our children because your children on those platforms are not safe and the people who want to do things like take identity theft or sell fentanyl or do you know any other things the purveyors of child porn or trafficking they are there on those sites on those platforms they are trolling for your children and they are very good at what they do and, so, and, and, and artificial intelligence is now equipping them with all the benefits that we know that it can give us and i'm a big champion of i've always been a big champion uh, of machine learning and artificial intelligence to solve problems but uh, unfortunately, a lot of this becomes weaponry for the bad actors, uh, and they're better equipped now to be predators than I think unsuspecting families and 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 parents are. Especially, we we just heard in the in the videotape, who would have thought that you had to worry about your toddler's uh, synthetic identity or identity that your toddler could become, and and that it's a target, or your elderly mom or dad who is not on the internet, they're ideal candidates for their identity to be stolen and synthesized and even developed into companies that then can perpetrate, you know, enormous financial fraud. Not, not, not even regarding the, the, the terrible 300, some odd 300 deaths that we have a day from opioid and now Trank and, and, and the other things we'll cover. So stay with us uh, there, Randy. We're going to come back to you in a few minutes after we dig into consent, because a lot of us aren't sure what we're consenting to when we, when we click on um, something that says, do you accept cookies? Whereas mm -hmm. a cookie sounds so innocuous and you're not sure what it is and you get so used to it that you're kind of blind to it. But let's dig into the real meat of what cookies are, why they're going away, privacy and preferences. But we need to really be ever present in our mind that the, the bad guys are getting equipped much faster than the good guys. Is that a reasonable statement? The bad guys really are getting much better equipped, faster, better, and are well-funded? Because that's their intention. 
is to is to you know be the bad guy and they're learning how to do that very effectively you know we got to remember that uh, anybody you're 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 dealing with online they they could be anybody they want that's the danger of the internet that anybody can go on there and say okay this is the identity that i'm going to take on when i'm a 50 year old man but i'm putting up forth an identity of a 13 year old girl to to snare somebody you know that, that there's no backstop to that and there's got to be well, thank you, Randy, and thank you for your passion and your desire to help us with our young people. So uh, last uh, month, we covered the five rights of pain management. And the reason I bring this up is that Dr. Gladstone Medell, probably one of the leading pain specialists, if not in the United States, maybe even the world, board certified in four specialties, uh, and I've known him for over 30 years, um, uh, worked with me on one of our series, which was the five rights of pain management. And as we uh, think about the five rights of pain management, it's part of the series of the five rights of emergency care, the five rights of uh, medical records and a whole series that we had created, including the five rights of, of uh, end of life care. And this is a reconciling framework as a biomedical engineer, as a systems engineer, we look for structures to be able to organize processes and hopefully we're good at it. Sometimes we're not, but we've been able to use these structures uh, in that way. And the five rights of pain management were the right um, test, the right diagnosis, the right treatment, the right monitoring, and the right prevention. And we use, for those of you on the podcast, a cycle graphic because you're never, you never quit improving each of those five rights. Well, we use the same concept for the five rights of identity. And so as I've been working with artificial intelligence leaders, some probably in the best in the world, I feel so blessed to get to work with them and the best communicators regarding this. I, I started to understand that the enormous value and the enormous risk of our consent, it really starts the process for maintaining our own personal identity, which is far more than where we live and who we are. It's everything, as we saw in the videotape regarding um, what Google gets from two brand new phones that had no SIM cards. Uh, the amount of detail that was tracked was actually really, really surprising. But the right consent, we have the right to consent that's being now with regulators being uh, driven. The right information that is collected, that it's accurate, that it's proper, that it can be used for us to our benefit or hopefully uh, not used by uh, perpetrators of bad acts. And then we need to really be recognizing that there must be the right access to that right information that I have rightfully given consent to have access to and have privacy uh, preferences of. And then the right use of that information. And then again, the long term as that data is stored and information is stored, that it's protected, the, the, those rights. So what's happened is, and you use the term Randy Wild West. And that's what it's been in terms of personal identity for years. And companies have now been aggregating trillions of dollars of value by working out there in the Wild West and presuming that we're giving them the right to use our data because there were no regulations. So it's if you click on a cookie that says, hey, I want to track you so you remember me when I, when I remember you when you come back to my website, that all seemed pretty innocuous. But those cookies have now driven whole personas and the data all about us with hundreds of 
characteristics and factors regarding us and our families that can be used for good, but also can be used for bad. So GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation uh, uh, for Europe, which uh, was put in place in 2018. And uh, in California, where I live, the CCPA and there are variations of, of that that are being addressed in the legislature, but really uh, uh, a similar focus and both of them uh, apply to the right request for information to be in, uh, to be informed, the right to re rectify it. You can see from the graphic and those on, on the podcast that the European requirement is the right to rectification, the right to erasure, the right to restrict processing, the right to data portability the right to object to processing, the rights in relation to automated decision-making and pro profiling. Now billions of dollars of fines uh, have been generated uh, due to violations of this. And here in California, the right to request information, right to data portability, the right to opt out, access, disclosure, and deletion. So they're similar but not identical. And the penalties can get to be enormous and you, you won't be surprised at who's been fined over these. So as we kind of look at this issue of uh, data about us, uh, first party, second party, third party data is important. So let's look at a video that we've created to help people understand personal identification and what the differences are. When we consider personal identity information, what is first party? second party and third party personal data. First party, second party and third party data are terms used in the context of data collection and ownership, particularly with regard to personal information about consumers. They describe different sources and relationships regarding the data. First party data. Definition. First party data refers to the information that an organization collects directly from its own customers or users. It is data that the organization owns and controls because it is gathered from its interactions with individuals. Example, when a website collects data on a user's behavior, such as website visits, product views, or user preferences, that data is considered first-party data for the website owner. First-party data comes from a direct relationship with the customer, is collected with consent, is individual data, has high accuracy and reliability, is not shared. And examples include customer email, phone number, purchase history, support history, and loyalty program information. Second party data. Definition. Second party data is essentially someone else's first party data that is shared with your organization through a direct partnership or agreement. It is data collected by another organization and then shared with your organization typically in a mutually beneficial arrangement. Example, if an e-commerce company partners with a complementary business, such as a travel booking platform to exchange customer data with consent and privacy compliance, the travel platform's customer data when used by the e-commerce company becomes second party data for them. Second party data is indirect customer relationship driven, collected with consent, Individual data, highly accurate and reliable, is shared only with trusted partners. Examples include website activity, social media profiles, customer feedback, and customer surveys. Third-party data. Definition. 
Third-party data is data that an organization acquires from external sources that are not the organization's own customers or partners. It is data collected and aggregated by other entities, such as data brokers, and is typically purchased or licensed for various purposes, including marketing and analytics. Example, if a marketing agency buys a data set of consumer preferences and demographics from a data broker to target advertising campaigns, that data set is considered third-party data for the marketing agency. Third-party data is an indirect customer relationship. It's unknown if it's collected with consent, depends on the data provider, is aggregated data, has low accuracy and reliability, is shared with many companies, and examples include income, age, education websites visited, and survey responses. The evolution to more secure first-party and second-party data is definitely on the move. So as we look at first-party, second-party, third-party data, uh, and we've, for those of you that uh, that are on the podcast, did not have the benefit of uh, watching the video and seeing the graphics, but I suggest that you download uh, the slides in order to be able to kind of uh, understand this. Just a quick a quick summary of uh, of those is that uh, first party data someone got because they have a direct relationship as a customer and perhaps even a contract with your uh, mobile provider. The second party, you don't know if they've sold or partnered or given or traded or rented your data uh, with one of their partners, but that's called second party. And third party data is scraped from the web, aggregated, and uh, bad actors want to get a hold of all three, and you can imagine what the most valuable is. So when we think about the five rights of my identity, let's just go through those quickly. So uh, first, the right consent. Proper consent must include privacy use preferences and be revocable. The use of tools and methods such as cookies can track users' online behavior, such as browsing history, preferences, and interactions. This information can be used to create detailed user profiles, which may infringe on a user's privacy. So you, you may give them consent, but they may use it to really build the book on you. The right information, the information collected and used may be inaccurate. Third-party data that is unconsented for access and use, which is aggregated and integrated, may be accurate and vi violate the privacy of the individual. And then we think about right access. Historically, third-party cookies have led to the data being shared with advertising and analytics companies without full user uh, awareness or control. In order to be in full compliance with the new laws and the evolving regulations, access to personal data must be granted. We'll get into the details there. And I know it sounds pretty detailed and nuanced, but this is really important to your identity and you at a medical center handling someone's identity, their, their information, and why this is as critical or maybe even more critical than HIPAA. And then the right use. Uh, individuals should have the right to privacy and use preferences that may be revocable and granted regularly. The right protection is critical, and we know that we've had uh, an enormous number of data breaches that are absolutely uh, a, a crisis in our country, and a lot of that information has really uh, uh, been uh, a problem for us. So we need to kind of keep that in mind. So now let's take a deeper dive 
in consent. Okay, so the first C is consent, us giving consent. What does that mean and what's really important in the regulations that should protect us as we go forward? And those of you that are in marketing at your hospital and medical center and businesses, we need to realize that you will be in violation of compliance of the new laws uh, as cookies go away and these uh, and, and people are scrambling to have data to market their products, to be very careful to understand what consent is and what it is not. What is consent? The definition of consent typically involves the following key elements. Voluntary agreement. Consent must be freely given, meaning that users should not be subjected to undue pressure, manipulation, or negative consequences if they choose not to provide consent. Users should have a unique choice in whether or not to allow the use of cookies. Informed. Users must be informed about what they're consenting to. This means they should receive clear and transparent information about the types of cookies being used, the purposes for which data is collected, and who the data will be shared with, among other relevant details. Specific and granular. Consent should be specific to each purpose for which the cookies are used. Websites should not bundle multiple purposes into a single consent request but should instead ask for separate consents for different types of cookies. Examples include necessary cookies, analytics cookies, advertising cookies. Affirmative action. Consent must be given through an affirmative action, such as clicking an accept button, toggling a switch, or actively selecting options in a cookie settings menu. Pre-ticked boxes or assumed consent, examples through the use of pre-checked boxes, are generally not considered valid forms of consent. Easily withdrawn. Users should have the ability to withdraw their consent at any time with the same level of ease with which they gave it. This means that websites should provide users with clear options to change their cookie preferences and opt out of data collection. Child consent. In many jurisdictions, obtaining consent from parents or guardians is required when collecting data from children below a certain age. Example, 13 years of age in the United States. So as we think about these issues and how critical that they really are, uh, how many of our kids do we think really understand when they click on the cookie and that are sharing their information uh, that they're putting their, themselves, their family uh, at risk? Uh, Randy, I'm going to come back to you now and, and just ask you, you know, as somebody who has been in the military, uh, you're also a pilot. You understand you and I are both pilots and we both understand the regulatory issues of staying within the guardrails and uh, of what we can do as a pilot and what we can do to be legal and current. It really is the Wild West. And um, just want to get your reaction to the fact that uh, we shouldn't go out and blame every tech company and every marketer. Uh, we've got a free enterprise system and capitalism has driven this great country of ours, but it's now time to kind of put smart regulation in. I, I'm probably, if people kind of label me, they'd say I was more on the conservative than the wildly liberal side. I, I'm kind of more to the more to the right, but I'm not one that believes that we throw out the, the big three that are brought up all the time of litigation, regulation, taxation. I'm a guy that says, look, I think we need to have smart litigation, smart regulation, smart taxation, 
and then really, really a fertile environment for us to be good social entrepreneurs, which is what we're doing today. Today, we're being social entrepreneurs, giving a free webinar to people, hoping that we can help their lives be better through our philanthropy and giving uh, uh, through this free webinar, which has been free for 40 years. Uh, but then there's also commercial entrepreneurship. And our country thrives because we've had the right balance between having not being overregulated or underregulated, not being overtaxed or undertaxed, and by having litigation, but maybe not too much. I'm I'm a, a both the biomedical engineer and a doctor, and I I used to be a tort reform guy, big champion because I was a private practitioner. But I've learned through patient safety, smart regulation and smart litigation are the only checks and balance of the predators. And so I'm kind of like, hey, I think we need to have a the right balance of these, and nothing's perfect, but. America is really a great place to have that balance. What are your thoughts? I agree 100%. And, you know, it's the, the, the with the regulation piece, and there's, you know, a, a large part, and myself included, so you can definitely over-regulate, you know, and, and the when regulation gets in the way of free enterprise, that becomes a problem. But the reason we have regulation is because individual corporations or companies were, weren't doing the right thing that they were dumping toxic chemicals into our drinking water. So we had to create the EPA. And, you know, the, the regulation occurred because the companies were not doing what they needed to do to protect people, you know, to protect. And it, it really comes down to the safety of individuals. And now we're in a different realm of that, where companies are, you know, doing this. And with, by all means, making having a, a successful Internet company and, and making money and and you know becoming profitable and all of that is 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 fine and that's the american way but you have to protect people in the process and if there is no requirement for that or if these companies are not willing to do those protections you know when you've got the 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 heads of companies you know on 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 recordings basically bragging about how they're they're trying to addict children to these platforms that's a problem and if that's the attitude of these companies, then yeah, there needs to be regulation. If they're not going to take those steps themselves to protect those those children, which they've shown they're not going to do, they know exactly what's going on on their platforms, but they're refusing to take the steps that they need. And I think, yeah, I'm not a technology you know aficionado or anything, but I know that there's technology out there that can be implemented to protect children to protect the interactions that they're having with with others on the, the 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 sites you know that when these predators are out there and they can use these children and these children's you know relative ignorance or or innocence in terms of how to interact with people and without those children even knowing they can extract information not only about the children but their families you know the background of where you know their their room where they're in offers clues to things that these people are looking for that is their objective it's not a oh well while i'm here i'll take advantage of this person they are there specifically to protect those people and you cannot tell me and i will never believe that with technology what it is today with artificial intelligence and with other means of 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 electronic deduction that these people cannot be exposed prior to them doing those acts. I, you know, th those, those measures are available technologically. The companies in question just refuse to implement them. And if that's the case, and if children are being harmed on these, these, these sites, and if things like child porn 
are being spread across to, to people using these sites, then these companies need to be held accountable. And if they're not willing to stop it, then we need action, courageous action from our Congress and our legislators in this country to make that happen. And when you, you, you talk about what's gone on in Europe and the protections that they're putting on people and the companies that are being hit really hard financially by violating those functions and then looking at the United States and our complete and total lack of interest from our legislators in this country to take any sort of action. And you have to ask yourself why. And I think we all know why. But at some point, profit and making money has to take a second seat to the safety of people, particularly when the most vulnerable populations that we're talking about are children, our children our children that go online every day, that this is the world they know. And th they're being taken advantage of by these companies. And, and they, they they have to be, these companies have to be held accountable. And we need to demand from our policymakers that they are held accountable and that they take the actions they need to do. They want to complain about regulation. Okay, don't let it come to that. Take the steps you need to take right now and keep this stuff from happening on your sites. You have to be responsible for it. Well, thank you, Andy. And I really appreciate your passion about this. And I think you're absolutely right on. And as we and really, it's a, a matter of, uh, of ethics. And so we draw your attention, and those of you on the podcast, we draw your attention to an article in the Harvard Business Review, which you may download, The Ethics of Managing People's Data. It is excellent, and I really highly recommend everybody read the article so that you can understand what's going on and why it's so important. And just, you know, stories are powerful. Uh, one of the stories addressed in this, um, in this uh, uh, article uh, are, uh, is one about Netflix. So Netflix decided we really want to improve our viewing algorithm. And they thought, we're going to uh, release 100 million records of customers' moving rate, movie ratings, and we'll give a million dollars to any data scientist who can create a better movie recommendation algorithm. The data had no direct identifiers, no UID, uh, uh, unified ID uh, uh, of its customers. Guess what? The researchers were able to identify the per people personally. 84% of those individuals were personally identified by using the data that is available on the internet. Shocking. I mean, and, and here, uh, uh, you know, they thought, oh, well, we're really going to be safe and, and that kind of thing. And if, a, if an organization like is a successful and an IT company like Netflix was surprised by that, um, you know, we should not be surprised at what's going on. So when we look at the GDPR, the uh, European focus uh, uh, and guidelines are tougher than even ours here in California. Uh, the fines have been enormous, and the top 20 fines, no big surprise that meta-owned companies, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, and Google are the ones that, that, that have been fined, and they've now reached over $4 billion, and they continue to grow. So the 20th, and you can go on the web to read about the 20 biggest GDPR fines thus far uh, uh, up to September of this year. So uh, 
the, you know, this is a growing issue. Now, the one interesting thing, Randy, that I found very, as in my research, as I've been doing work in this space and AI now, full court press for, you know, for, for some time, um, is the fact that uh, they're recommending what we do in our medical centers. And that is why, that you need to have an AI ethics committee, an institutional review board. So in both articles, in the Harvard Business Review, they address the issue of having an institutional review board to handle your data, have ethicists there, have experts in the IT area, experts in the domain of projects and work that they undertake. And Randy, you and I have lived, lived and worked in medical centers for years. I've been, I've been applying to or being on, the, on institutional review boards um, and, and received federal grants and, and, and private grants uh, where institutional review boards are a way that we determine that we are doing proper and ethical research and everybody's rights are carefully preserved. So I think there's a lot of best practices that companies are going to need to to have and use. And it was encouraging to me to hear that these were the recommendations. Now, um, are, are they going to do it? That, you know, I, I think, again, you know, I, I love our free enterprise system, but I don't think they're going to do it unless they have to do it. And we know that that Google, in fact, who I worked with for four years, full disclosure, uh, uh, Google has decided to kick removing cookies from uh, the end of 2022 to the end of 2023 and now to the end of 2024, because it's very, very hard to do what they do and what these companies do without actually presuming or allowing themselves to use your data without having the strict um, uh, consent and use uh, permission to use and preferences. So uh, we're still, I think, Randy, I think we're still in the wild, wild west uh, for sure. Um, now, what I want to do is shift gears and then we'll come back to you, Randy, uh, to Dr. Gregory Boats, uh, who is actually on vacation. Uh, ICU docs, as you all know, uh, have to work pretty hard to get their holidays. And as always, he, you can count on Dr. Boats to be there with us. He was in a low, um, at low, in, low, low um, uh, 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 communication field for both the cellular and for, uh, and for wireless. And so we've actually uh, created his recording as a videotape and we put his quotes on the screen. So my apologies to our podcast audience, and we're going to re-record uh, him. But for those that are watching live and those that are watching the video, you'll see Dr. Boat's quotes are about a range of topics that we cover now that we're talking about year end. And then Randy, we'll come back to you. Well, Dr. Boats, thank you so much for taking time to share with us here now at the end of the year. We're going to cover some of the topics that have been critically important throughout the year. First off, how important is it that we know about this thing called train? What is it and why should we know about it? Well, that's really an important question. Train is a street name uh, for a drug, biolazine. Biolazine is a sedative agent that's been used in veterinary practice for some time, but even though it underwent testing, it has never been approved for use in humans. But now our friendly drug dealers have figured out that by adding that to drugs like fentanyl, they can get a different or a better high. But the problem is that it's a very difficult drug to dose effectively in adults and can cause very 
um, significant uh, respiratory and um, and mental status changes that are very unfavorable, especially if combined with other drugs. The other problem is that tranquil use the way that drug users use it can cause very significant necrosis or or um, uh, damage to the tissue, especially in the skin. And uh, we are finding that drug users are having very significant skin um, lesions that can go all the way through down towards the muscle. And we're treating them as if they're burn patients because it's very difficult to control and treat the these areas of necrosis. Thank you. And and the fentanyl crisis, although it's not getting as much play now in the press with all the other things going on, uh, we understand it's still a really bad problem. And this concept of one pill can kill regarding counterfeit meds. Tell us about that. Well, that's absolutely true. The spread of fentanyl in our communities has continued and perhaps accelerated um, despite things like the COVID pandemic and other issues that are on the, the front page of the news. Uh, but we're still seeing people that die from fentanyl exposure. A very, very small amount of fentanyl can cause significant respiratory depression or can stop your breathing and lead to death. Now, one pill can kill is uh, an effort by a lot of agencies, including the Drug Enforcement Administration, to um, provide public awareness of how dangerous fentanyl is. And the fact that it's being added to lots of uh, drugs that our children and, and adults can be exposed to. There's a huge uh, market for counterfeit pills, especially coming across the border from Mexico. So many of the pills that look like other drugs that people might use, like Vicodin or Oxycontin or perhaps even Adderall, may have been mixed with fentanyl. In fact, in 2022, the Drug Enforcement Administration seized some um, 50 million counterfeit pills over the year from a variety of sources. And when tested, about 60% of those counterfeit pills had a lethal dose of fentanyl incorporated into that pill. That's frightening because if you think about kids in college or uh, young adults who may uh, buy a pill on the street thinking that they're getting an oxy oxycodone for pain, um, that may be their first exposure to fentanyl and they die. There's no opportunity to remediate or rehabilitate these people and so it's having a very significant impact on our communities and Many of the deaths that we're seeing in young celebrities and, and young people of note in our communities um, are actually related to fentanyl. So, Dr. Boats, uh, uh, why is it so important to understand uh, how Narcan works and the uh, and and uh, what it is and and why now that it's available? I bought mine on Amazon this week after you let me know that they were selling it on Amazon, why it's so important and why we should have it handy. Sure, so Narcan, or the generic name naloxone, is a drug that reverses opiates. And fentanyl and morphine, oxycodone are opiate drugs. 
that's the only thing that Narcan does. It doesn't have any other effects on the body. So if you give it to someone and they don't have opiates in their system, it won't cause them any harm. Well, because of the explosion or the tremendous exponential growth of fentanyl in our community, um, one of the strategies to try to save people is to disperse Narcan, the reversal agent, to as many places as possible. So there's an effort to first make it a non-prescription drug that can be obtained over the counter without a prescription and make it available as cheaply as possible because it was expensive uh, when it was first put on the market as a nasal spray. And that's been accomplished by some uh, generic drug providers that now have put these on the market. Uh, Narcan is now available on Amazon, as you said, for a reasonable price. And so um, we are trying to make efforts to have Narcan available in as many public places as possible. Our EMS providers and law enforcement providers carry uh, Narcan now. Um, our police officers and UC police now carry Narcan on their person when they're on duty. Um, and so by doing that, we may have an opportunity to reverse the deadly consequences of opiates that are leading to so many deaths in our young adults and young children. We're seeing deaths in middle school from fentanyl exposure, which is just a tragedy. Dr. Boats, the issue of identity theft and specifically medical identity theft and how we kind of are at the intersection of now consent to allow our personal information to be available through um, our consent on our mobile phones and on our computers uh, has really opened the doors for many organizations to be using our data improperly and the bad actors to aggregate it and even develop the Frankenstein identity and synthesize even new identities. Tell us why it's so important that one's medical records be accurate, especially at the time of an emergency or critical care. Well, I think this is a really important concept. I think most of us understand the, the idea of identity theft with bad actors stealing our information and maybe using it in a, a financial or a transactional sense. But now there's a threat to our medical records and people can take over our identities or, as you say, create a new identity with your aggregated information that they gather over the internet or from publicly available sites to uh, exploit your medical record to get medical services, either to obtain uh, services, to get prescriptions for narcotic drugs, to get durable medical equipment that they can, yeah. then can be resold. Um, and this information is then attributed to the person whose identity was stolen and the ability to test that and remediate it to get that false information or that false activity off your medical record is extraordinarily difficult to do. We find that insurance companies are being billed for these services in the name of people who never received those services or who never received those prescriptions. This is, again, an emerging threat to our medical community because when someone comes into the emergency room or comes into the ICU, we depend on their historical medical records to make decisions about their care 
especially if they're not able to voice it themselves. So if someone comes in from a car crash into the emergency room and they pull them up on publicly available, excuse me, privately available medical resources that may contain their medical records, that information may be incorrect and they may do treatment options that aren't in the best interest of the patient or aren't necessary because the medical records is contaminated with this uh, illegal activity. Thank you, Eddie. It really is. Uh, it, it's uh, it's really under the waterline until it happens to you, and then the cost is just extraordinary. Shifting gears quickly, Dr. Boats, to evacuation and emergency care and your background in helping support law enforcement and the police force at the University of Texas Health Science Center and MD Anderson, and your work with the DEA and work with many, uh, many experts, um, help us address the fact that it would, it, it would be really good for us to have our, the information available for first responders for those that, uh, that might be wheelchair bound, blind, deaf, or have a chronic illness that requires medication. We're kind of addressing this in terms of first responders and failure to rescue. How important is all that information to the first responders? I think access to that information is incredibly important to first responders or any healthcare entity when there is a disruption in the normal flow of information in our medical databases or repositories. Because again, decisions have to be made based on the available information. And if we lack access to those resources, we have to use our best guess. So now that there has been a a large explosion of personal devices that people carry or other repositories uh, in a cloud-based system. Having uh, an accurate version of your medical record, including your medical problems, your allergies, your medications, and other things that are particular to you, available to first responders, allows them to better understand you and make better choices about your treatment, especially if you aren't able to either provide that information to them from memory, or if you're not able to give them information at all, um, to be able to provide care for you in the best uh, available manner. Fantastic. And, and you work uh, for most of the time that you work there in Houston, and where we have hurricanes and floods and Today, you're in California here with us, and we are concerned about earthquakes and a number of those uh, issues. Um, being able to have bystanders equipped with our med tech skills at the time of a mass uh, casualty event or some of these natural uh, events that occur, can you just address why we should continue to re renew our vigor regarding getting bystanders trained up and what to do until first responders arrive? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing is that we have found that there is a gap in care between the time of the medical emergency and the response of professional first responders. And in that gap, we can train bystanders to provide life, life-saving care uh, and, and provide that until the professional first responders get there. Now, in the context of a natural disaster, uh, an overwhelming emergency 
uh, in a community. Uh, for instance, natural disasters often overwhelm our EMS, fire, and police resources. And so having people that are trained in life-saving bystander care is a force multiplier to be able to provide life-saving, life-sustaining care until those first responders can get there. And we've seen in a number of natural disasters in the Houston area with Hurricane Harvey or Hurricane Katrina and others, that our emergency resources frequently get overwhelmed in the early stages until additional resources can respond. And having third teams and having bystanders who are trained in recognition and initial management of medical emergencies is crucial for the survival of our of our community members. Well, Dr. Boats, thank you so much for uh, your help over the year and for helping educate us regarding these issues. I know we know you're on vacation and we you're always so dedicated to help others. And um, our, our final comment is that you, uh, you and I have been discussing some of these recent articles regarding CPR and whether everybody should get CPR and, and, and that kind of thing. And I think it's important to just keep emphasizing, um, you know, that there is a, that won't save everybody. Uh, however, it's really critical that we learn these skills. As you know, my son's life was saved because I was working with you teaching Heimlich maneuver, and had I not been practicing it, I'm not sure I could have uh, I could have saved him. Well, you know that's absolutely true. Uh, unfortunately, there have been a number of editorials written recently about the success rates of. CPR, and admittedly, whether it's an in-hospital CPR event or an out-of-hospital CPR event, the results are not favorable, but they're not zero. And we have lots of data showing that in people with sudden cardiac arrest, doing CPR is the best intervention until professional first responders can get there and use their monitors, their medications, and their devices to give the patients the best opportunity at a good survival. Well, thank you, Dr. Boats. Your, your dedication's been extraordinary, and there would not be a MedTech if you and I had not had the telephone call where you suggested the concept way back in 2015. Well, I think we recognize that um, providing care to our community members makes them safe. And my focus, and I know your focus in patient safety, has always been on providing safe care to our patients. And one important element in that is the care of the caregiver. And in thinking about the care of the caregiver, we have to think about their family and the communities that they live in. And so this is a very important part of that spectrum of care that provides the best patient care that we can and provides the best care of our community members uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. That's our focus and that's why we continue to do it. Well, thank you so much. God bless. Have a really great holiday, and we'll look forward to working with you in the new year. So we really uh, have appreciated having Dr. Boats uh, 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 work with us uh, on uh, these areas. And uh, Randy, uh, I'd like to kind of come back to you um, uh, for some summary thoughts. And then what we'll do is the uh, there's an excellent video that you all heard at the very beginning and you heard a short section with the fellow with the English accent 
uh, cover medical identity. And I wanted to tee up for you, Randy, this vulnerability are you are, are everyone from newborns all the way through to our kids in college are at risk for in terms of identity because um, they don't have a lot of medical history. They probably don't they don't use their medical insurance. And so basically the kids, the seniors and those that are deceased, the identity can be used either directly the way that they are or synthesized into the Frankenstein um, catchy term, but I'm not sure it helps people understand this synthetic identity that's now being used to be able to defraud the system of almost a trillion dollars. It's over $700 billion, uh, but the harm that can be done, I teed that up. Uh, we'll finish our, our webinar on time in seven minutes, but then I'm going to play the full 20 minute video which addresses the six areas of uh, identity theft and why we should know about them. But I want to come back to you first, uh, 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 Randy, and let you kind of uh, um, cap any of the thoughts that you have from what you've heard today and what we might have missed that you want to emphasize and underscore. Um, then we'll hear from uh, our wonderful voice of the patient from Jennifer Dingman. And then I'm going to put on for those of you that are not earning continuing education credits or want to watch the rest of that 20 minute video. I think it's absolutely superb. I, it's the best I've seen, but uh, we didn't have time to cover all of the groundwork here within 90 minutes. And we try to keep on our 90 minutes for CEU credits for nurses and CME credits for docs. So go ahead, Randy, what would you like to close with? Well, I just go back to, you know, what Dr. Rose was talking about, you know, specifically on the, the you know, the, the use of fentanyl. Where, where are these kids getting this? You know, the, the, these drugs, they're getting them online. They're getting them on these platforms that we've been talking about. And once again, we go back to there. You're telling me there's no these platforms want to indicate there's no technology available to prevent this. Somebody's got to ask for a drug. Somebody's got to do the logistics to deliver that drug. Those Tags are out there and can be discovered if the right technology is implemented by these companies, but they don't seem to care to want to do that. You know, you look at what, what our Congress is doing, you know, the, the, the Protect Act of 2020 or 2003, you know, has never been amended to deal with the, you know, fentanyl or, or other, you know, online and Protect Act was there to pre prevent, you know, child sexual exploitation and, and you know, uh, um, the use or the, the sale of illicit materials online. It's never been amended. To deal with these these updated threats and the technology is continually advancing but we haven't had a bill in congress since 2003 to address with this currently uh, uh cory hatch in new jersey just uh, you know or i'm sorry cory booker of new jersey just in, or, or, or introduced um the 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 i trying to remember the name of it the senate or the targeting online sales of fentanyl act it's uh, senate bill uh, 2982 uh, this only came, was introduced in October of this year. And how long have we been talking about this fentanyl problem, Chuck, on, on, on these webinars? But only this year, late this year, a, a couple of months ago, has Congress actually done anything to address it? And you know what's happened with that bill? Nothing. Our Senate and our House are on vacation. And while they're on vacation, thousands, thousands, Chuck, of children are going to die because of the fentanyl that they bought online. So if we don't do something about this, if we don't push our representatives to get off their butts and do something about this issue and take some action to protect our children, it's going to continue. The companies, the online platforms do not care. 
and they are not going to take the steps of their own accord to protect our children. They've shown us that. And there's no reason for them to because there's no law that says they have to. Well, we want those laws if they're not going to do it. And Congress refuses to do anything about it at this point, or that the, the, the actions that they're taking are just not adequate. And we, as the people who pay their salaries, need to do something. We need to address that with all of our congressmen. I know. And, and, you know, the thing that is just so shocking to me now is I have a high school senior who's heading to college. Uh, we as parents have not done a good enough job at protect. Just think about patient safety now. You know, we have might because we're funded by our own philanthropy. We don't we're, we're not we, we don't have to just stay just in the old pure patient safety, medication management, uh, adverse drug events. And we don't really care how many people attend because we're building building blocks of content that we know is vital. And whether we get a lot of draw today or whether they find it valuable in a year, we're praying about what we can do to serve. And you and I both are people of faith and believe that and, and, and work with that. And I think we've got to build a foundation to get parents activated to be uh, contacting their legislators and, and really take a full court press rather than the passive watching this by this partisan stuff that's going on in the news constantly. You know, America is good at teams. Like we're good at building stuff. We're good at innovation. I don't hear those stories anymore. All I hear is all this squabbling and it's just, we've got to address the fentanyl and this crisis of identity theft um, is crippling families. And as you know, um, uh, you, you know, it, it, our youth are unprepared. They're unprepared to go to college. I can, as I look at high school seniors, we've thrown them car keys, we've thrown them independence. Um, we've, we're not telling them how bad vaping is to harm their lung tissue. And the only kids I know that, that really recognize it are the ones that are, that want to be, you know, really high level athletes. I am so grateful that my son wants to be a high level athlete and understands he doesn't want to hurt. I mean, he eats better than I do. And I'm really careful about my sugar and my fat and all of that. I mean, he will, will not harm his body because he wants to be a world-class athlete, but I'm telling you, the average kids that are high school kids or kids that are into freshmen heading into high school have no idea the threats that are out there. It's like we're throwing them into the wilderness without a without a Swiss Army knife. They've got nothing, and they're we're throwing them into. And you see that at college, right? I mean, you see the college students that are coming into university today, right? You're, you're in charge of protecting them. You, are they? You increase that pressure on them as human beings when they go to college, and these issues just compound themselves. And they don't have the same support system they have when they're in high school and younger. Well, and so I think, and I know I could enlist your help to help us, and we, you know, I've talked about it, and I've got other leaders. We, we undertook our program as an experiment a few months ago uh, to address rising freshmen in high school and rising freshmen in college. It was really well received, and our homework on preparing for that webinar was shocking. Shocking how unprepared our families are, our parents are. Um, I'm really blessed. We're now at 1130 Pacific, so we're going to close. But um, I have the honor of chairing two Eagle Scout board reviews here in a, few, in a couple of hours of two fantastic uh, young people. But even something like 
these organized structures to, to do community service. A lot of these kids finish doing these building blocks and they enter college and no one's really giving them a call to action for community service while they're in college, right? So I think that there's a big opportunity for us through the rising freshmen to high school, the rising freshmen to college and their parents and families uh, to, to for a call to action. Uh, I'm not one that believes it. To, uh, at my age, I'm not sure I can influence the legislators very much, but I can sure as heck impact some families. And so, and I know you can. So I think we, for those of you that are listening today, um, listen in the future, because we're going to bring you some building blocks for these young people. The shocker for me, again, preparing for this webinar, was how the predators are using even toddler. I mean, can you imagine having to check the credit rating of your of your little child? And yet we have to do it because the predators are pretty darn sharp. So anyway, thank you very much. Uh, uh, and thank you for your passion, uh, Randy, and your dedication to help young people. Thank you for protecting our students at University of California campuses. And uh, thank you for uh, really providing mentorship on our rescue route uh, research, which we're going to be talking about next month in January. We want to thank everyone uh, for uh, uh, joining us uh, today. Um, it's just, uh, it's been an honor to serve you. And here we're, um, we're starting uh, our 40th year in January. It'll be the beginning of our 40th, uh, uh, you know, our, uh, uh, our anniversary year. And so we're very blessed uh, to be doing it. I'm going to have uh, Jenny Dingman provide the voice of the patient, and, and then I'll close. Thank you to all of our speakers today. It was very, very informative. I just wish everyone a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. God bless and looking forward to being with all of you again next year. Again, please share the program with everyone you know, and God bless. So uh, what we'd like to do is uh, just close as we always uh, do with uh, uh, our, our kind of mantra, of we've got to fight the good fight, uh, we'll finish the race uh, and we'll keep the faith and we want to finish the year out recognizing that really everyone is a patient and everyone can be uh, uh, a caregiver. And we just want to thank you all for your attendance uh, this uh, this year. And we will wrap up our webinar just a few minutes over time. And I will be now playing the full length video uh, regarding the six ways of uh, identifying and preventing the uh, issue of uh, identity theft as it applies to not only uh, medical care, but, uh, but finance. And thank you very much, Randy and, uh, and Dr. Boats for your help. Hello everyone, my name is Bradley and this is SumSub, a channel on how to survive in the online jungle. Now, in 2009, an Austrian artist named Michael Markovici presented to the world the most intrinsically valuable art piece to have ever been created. The installation was named, very adequately, One Billion Dollars and it represents 12 standard pallets on which buckets and bundles of hundred dollar bills are stacked. That amount of money would probably just about fit onto a 20 foot shipping container. But why am I telling you about this? Well, according to the US Identity Theft Report, losses from identity theft amounted to $712 billion last year alone. That is 700 containers filled to the brim with $100 bills. To transport them, you'd probably need an entire handy sized vessel. And today, I'm going to teach you how to keep your money off of that ship and safe in your pocket.
So back to the US identity theft report. According to IT Group's researchers, the coronavirus pandemic has directly led to a twofold increase in personal data fraud. Now, I suppose a significant increase in the number of unemployed people and additional social programs to support the population attracted the attention of cyber criminals here. People who lost their jobs were happy to grab attractive opportunities to earn some money off the internet. And equally, there were many who applied for stimulus checks online. And here, many were taken advantage of and were subsequently exposed to the most common kind of cybercriminal scam. According to statistics, 34% of cases of personal data theft are related to the substitution of a social security number. For my fellow non-American viewers, a social security number is a nine-digit unique number that every US citizen has. This number is used for tax accounting and pension calculations. SSNs will be required when applying for a new job, and they'll also be required at the bank when opening a new account, applying for a loan or renting a house. If you live in the UK, like me, it's basically a national insurance number. Now, the widespread use of social security numbers for identity verification has a downside. Scammers can actually find out your number by digging through your trash or stealing mail from your mailbox. Bank statements, drafts of contracts and landlord's notes could quite easily uncover your social security number or your national insurance number. And therefore, security experts like me recommend that you should always carefully destroy any SSN or NI-related papers. Dracaris. So why are scammers hunting you for your social security number or national insurance number? Well, firstly, it's so that scammers can change their identity or the identity of their paying customer to hide closet skeletons from a would-be employer. Imagine that Joe Valerievich Blogs had a criminal record for financial crimes. It's unlikely that he'd get a job at Barclays Banking, even as a cleaner. But using your SSN, an attacker might be able to get a decent position and possibly commit new crimes using it. It's like looking in a mirror, only not. Now that exact thing was done by Anthony Lamar Taylor. In 1997, he stole Tiger Woods' social security number, and for more than a year, the famous golfer did not even suspect that the fraudster managed to issue a copy of his driver's license and get a $17,000 loan. Now, these loans were obviously not paid, and this attracted the attention of Tiger Woods' accountant. The police subsequently quickly found the fraudster, and now he will spend the next 200 years behind bars. To prevent the repetition of such a story with your social security number, close access to your credit report. If a criminal tries to get a new card or open a new account using your number, he or she has not a chance, because no bank will deal with the person without a credit report. Now, when you decide to get a new loan yourself, you'll have no problems opening access to your report. A stolen social security number can ruin your relationship with the IRS. In the best case scenario, the fraudster's employer is going to report this person's income to the Internal Revenue Service. When you file your tax return, IRS employees will have questions about why you hid part of your income. You also have to prove that a completely different person used your number. In the worst case scenario, a fraudster may actually try to defraud the IRS themselves. For example, they might try to issue a fake income declaration on your behalf. Now, the trick here is to get the government to reimburse fictitious income tax. To receive the payment, they'll have to use an account that has no ties to you whatsoever, but it will be extremely difficult for you to prove that you're not involved in the scam in any way, shape, or form. To protect yourself from SNN-related tax fraud, file your income declaration as early as possible. This basically increases the likelihood that the fraudster will attract attention by specifying a number that's, well, already been used. And if you receive a letter from the IRS, with questions about earnings that you did not receive, do not delay the matter. Immediately report suspicions of social security number theft. 
In 2020, the use of stolen SSNs to receive unemployment benefits has become, well, especially popular, I'd say. And sometimes scammers manage to arrange such payments in several states at once. To notice such a crime in time, you ought to regularly check the operations on your insurance account, so make sure to do that. And most importantly, never ever give out your SSN to suspicious sites. Scammers often try to fish out your number by promising a huge prize to a random visitor or forcing you to specify it to receive, I don't know, a valuable gift, right? Or a ticket of some kind. Congratulations, you won. Congratulations, you won. Congratulations. Also, try not to use banking websites either. They're relatively easy to fake and they can actually be used to get your personal data. Use mobile apps instead. Do not store a photo or a scan of your SSN card or national insurance number on social networks. Let me explain why. Social networks are much easier to hack than your bank account, right? And if your account is hacked, the number may actually get onto the black market. Treat the data of your newborn children in the same way. In 2017 alone, more than a million American families have been confronted with child identity theft. Identity theft in total cost them $540 million in direct losses. For example, there's this case with Kimberly Reed from Seattle, and she was surprised to learn that her two-year-old son is not only taking his first steps, but is also earning a decent amount of money. At least, the IRS certainly has questions about the kid's income tax. I'm only 12. I can't be held legally responsible. Hmm, good point. Unfortunately, in almost 20% of cases here, children become victims of their parents, guardians, or relatives. And about 60% of children who have become victims of fraud know the perpetrators. Often children trustfully disclose their data to friends on social networks, or sometimes they're lured by cunning or the threat of violence by familiar teenagers, right? By the way, uh, 987-65-4320. That's my social security number. No, that's your PIN number. No, my PIN number is 3674. Bingo. The digitalization of school and medical documents has become another channel for the leakage of such data. As the result of a negligent attitude to information security, child identification data often gets leaked to the World Wide Web. So, to protect your child, teach him or her about the real dangers of the online jungle. And do that from an early age. Do not forbid online communication, but explain in detail that the strange attention of a network friend can actually threaten them. Unpleasant surprises can also be waiting for you in the hospital. The theft of medical identity is something you should be concerned about, and it's becoming more and more popular. Moreover, in this case, it's not just your wallet that's at stake, it's your health too. Let me explain. Medical identity theft is the use of someone else's identity to basically obtain medical services. The danger to your health is that diagnoses, extracts, and the results of examinations of a fraudster can get into your medical history. And this happened to a New Yorker actually named June Smith. And one day she visited a doctor and he stunned her with this incredible news. Tests showed that June was pregnant. However, 
June was in no hurry to please her husband, Tom, with this news. The fact of the matter is that they were both over 70 years old. There could be no question of a pregnancy whatsoever. Now, Medicare specialists joined this investigation quite quickly, and they found out that tens of thousands of dollars went to pay for non-existent doctors in fictional hospitals. Now, to detect this kind of fraud in time, I would suggest carefully monitoring your medical history. Any incomprehensible tests that show up or requests from other hospitals are a serious reason to check your health insurance. Similarly, you can actually protect yourself from Surely you've heard stories more than once about how fraudsters can make large purchases using someone else's credit card. They're my new, I don't need a job, I don't need my parents, I've got great boots boots. How'd you pay for them? A uh, credit card. Mm -hmm. And who pays for that? Um, my father. This type of fraud appeared simultaneously with the plastic cards themselves. Only then, not computers, but phones were used for remote purchases. And while the cardholder would dictate his or her number and expiration date, the attacker could actually eavesdrop and record them for his own shopping. Now, fake websites are more often than not used to steal other people's data, right? They can simulate a bank, an online store, even an online auction. In any case, the mechanism is pretty much the same. You enter your card details without suspecting that you're on a fraudulent website. Copying the design and basic functionalities is not really difficult at all. It just remains to register a domain that is similar to the domain of the site that you're interested in. Now here, similar letters actually play into the hands of the scammers. And this is very interesting, right? Because in the browser address bar, it's very difficult to distinguish certain letters from others. For instance, a lowercase l looks like an uppercase I, and an uppercase O looks like a zero. So this is why the domain aloha.us is easy to replace with, well, aloha.us. Now this is the chef's choice when it comes to the menu of the Hacker House Grill. However, if people used to send fake links via email, well now they're increasingly using SMS, push notifications and short messages. And in them, they mask fake addresses using link shortening services. And therefore, always double check such links, or better yet, open a new browser tab and type in the address manually so as to not confuse the letters. But only really inexperienced scammers debit money directly from the account, and it's quite easy to detect, especially if you set up notifications for your account. Some scammers may actually start with small deposits. If you don't notice the appearance of a couple of extra dollars, then you clearly don't keep track of your account. And this is a good signal to then start withdrawing more money. Therefore, do not rejoice in unexpected money. An incomprehensible transfer is a good reason to actually contact the bank's security service. Okay, right, here's a fun story for you all. I was on a drunken night out about a year ago, and I suddenly remembered that it was my friend Joe's birthday. Now, for some reason, I thought it'd be a really good idea to buy him 10,000 Class D Instagram followers. Now, this was funny for me because these are the kind of accounts that you don't want following you. They have no followers, they have some random name, right? And their profile is a mix of capture images. Now, being drunk, I didn't realize that the site to which I was inputting my card details wasn't that kosher. Uh, but who cares, right? I was paying 20 quid to make my mate famous and piss him off a bit, or so I thought. And over the next month, I started getting mysterious withdrawals appear from my account. And after a bit of research, I found that the account that was taking my money was the same one to which I had paid for those Instagram followers. So card blocked, police contacted, yada, 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 but I don't know, at least Joe had fun deleting all of those unsavory Instagram accounts from his page. But look, obviously this was at the hand of an amateur. 
serious attackers more likely to use your data to open a new account. Now, the trouble is, sometimes criminals can actually copy your identity without the use of your social security number, or if you're in the UK, your national insurance number. Now, I'm talking about something called social media impersonation. Okay, so scammers can actually create a fake profile of you on one of the social networks, and then they can use that to deceive your family and friends. For example, you probably have an account on, I don't know, Instagram or Facebook. But what about TikTok or Likey? Okay, but then there's WeChat, Clubhouse, Caffeine or Vero. And for us oldies, there's LinkedIn and MySpace. There are really too many of these social networks to count, and your shadow double could really appear on any of them. Scammers only really need to copy the public data that's available on your main profile and just wait until one of your real acquaintances asks to be friends. And the more you write about yourself somewhere on the internet, well, the more realistic their fake portrait of you can seem. Now, I say that because a few years ago, the story of Clint Eastwood's son caught my attention. A network fraudster using the fake profile of Scott Eastwood tricked a gullible fan who agreed to help the son of the celebrity buy a plot of land in Poland. Fake Scott came up with an exciting story, including fraudulent lawyers and bank accounts in the USA, and even sent the gullible woman a copy of his passport. All of this was in pursuit of a grand total of 150,000 US dollars. And as soon as the money appeared in the account of the fraudster, Eastwood's son vanished into thin air. Damn it, no, we're dying here! Goodbye, peasants! Bastard teleported! To counteract such attempts, don't be lazy. Make sure to create a legitimate profile on all the popular social networks and claim your unique username on places such as Facebook and Instagram. Remember, these are services that only allow one. There is only one Brad J. Peak. Use identical profile photos across the board and leave a link to your main place of virtual residence for close friends and family. But even such methods will not protect you against the new fashion in online fraud. Now, with such deception, scammers combine pieces of your real data with fictional ones, and this allows them to create a reliable but independent digital identity. Now, let's say you're building this fraudulent avatar. It could effectively combine your real SSN number, a portrait that is generated using this person does not exist, the neural network, and maybe some credit card data that's been stolen from a Canadian student and then sold on the dark web. Now, there are also services on the web that help generate reliable phone numbers for this avatar, addresses, names, and even mailboxes for digital fakes, right? Synthetic personal data helps fraudsters to apply for things like loans, they receive bank cards using the states, they participate in trading on cryptocurrency and options exchanges, or they could even sell fraudulent courses. And with this type of fraud, there's usually no clearly defined victim, so digital identities remain undisclosed for a very long time. Now, if you're seriously concerned about the security of your data, there are a few things that you can do, specifically services you can use. There's Identity Guard, Identity Force, and ID Shield. Now, for a subscription fee, these services scan popular hacker sites on the clear net and the dark web. They can find stolen social security numbers, report database leaks with passwords, and even track social activity that is conducted on your behalf. Such services can identify synthetic identity theft from individual pieces of your information. And yet, perhaps only they can protect against the exact cloning of your digital identity. 
Now the theft of digital profiles is effectively the most technologically advanced method of well, using personal data fraudulently. You remember that I told you about search engines and large networks and how they can distinguish you from millions of other users just by your digital fingerprints. I'm talking about the characteristic features of your computer, your operating system, your browser, your online behavior, your geolocation, and even the characteristic patterns that you leave behind. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then maybe you haven't seen our video on digital fingerprints, but no worries, it's eternally on our channel, so take a look after this video. Similar digital fingerprint tracking systems used by large banking systems, online stores, or even crypto exchanges. And they basically compare your digital footprints, your behavior, and the nature of your payment transactions. And if they have reason to suspect that another person is trying to use your card, let's suppose that this transaction is from an unrecognized computer, from another country, it's for something unusual perhaps, then the suspicious payment will be rejected. In fact, there are over 100 parameters that are analyzed to ascertain authenticity in this sense. And yet, according to Juniper Research, losses from online payment fraud will reach $43 billion in 2021. But I suppose the big question here is how are scammers managing to pull off these elaborate scams? Are they in cahoots with the banks? Well, no, not at all. They just frequent these digital supermarkets where you can literally buy a digital clone of a real person. Look, this one of the shadow exchanges, Genesis Store, it has over 50,000 digital clones in its database. Now, the price of these clones is determined by the completeness of the data. So a clone can cost both $5 and also $200. The most expensive ones come complete with an online banking password. And the cheapest ones, well, they include access to a couple of social networks or web services. Now, this effectively distinguishes Genesis from sites where user data was previously sold, where sets of usernames and passwords or credit card numbers were literally listed. And here, you can buy a complete clone. The browser plugin actually allows you to download the purchase data in just one click. And then the attacker can only use a proxy server to simulate network activity from some selected location. To be honest, such digital slave markets are a serious challenge for anti-fraud systems, like the one that we offer at SumSub. Therefore, more and more services resort to video identification. In fact, there's actually a compulsory feature with verification in places such as Germany, Estonia, and also Liechtenstein. So look, if someone steals your digital identity, you're faced with some serious issues. According to ITRC data, 55% of people who faced personal data theft were forced to actually leave work. 44% lost the opportunity to find employment, and 29% actually ended up seeking state assistance. Financial troubles in this sense can last for months or even years. You'll have to restore your credit score over time and actually convince the employees of the tax administration that you weren't complicit in hiding illegal sources of income. Ruined investment accounts can put an end to your children's education and deprive you of a decent pension later in life. Moreover, if you encounter a difficult case, expert advice and legal costs can actually undermine your financial well-being. And this goes without mentioning the emotional consequences, which are not so obvious, but are also very pressing. Just imagine that on your behalf, under the guise of your photo, scammers deceived other people, maybe your friends or family. Your reputation can be damaged irreparably. The trust of friends and colleagues may actually never be regained. Even too much media attention can damage your career. And finally, remediless damage can be done to your health, not only your physical health, but also your mental health. Imagine that you spend several months buying bars on charges of well, major financial fraud. It's unlikely that you're gonna to return to freedom in the same state of mind. And now remember about the probability of medical errors if your medical history is combined with that of another person. I mean, 
you've got to be careful. The techniques of scammers are developing as rapidly as our digital technologies are. Protection systems can always be used against their creators. This race will continue, and to leave the race means to lose. Anyway, my name is Bradley Peake, and I'd like to personally extend my genuine gratitude for your gallantry in this gallop across the glimmering gracious ghoulscapes and the grubby and galvanized growling growths of the online jungle. So I will personally see you in the next video. Thanks for joining us.